This audio recording is of Restoration Road's regular Sunday service, October 8, 2012. The reader is Andrew Pack. The speaker is Sam Ford. More information can be found at rdchurch.com. Please open your Bibles with me to Titus chapter 2, starting in verse 11. If you have one of our paperback Bibles, it will be on page 2, or pardon me, 647. Titus 2, verse 11. For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions, and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in this present age waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself uh, for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. Declare these things. Exhort and rebuke with all authority. Let no one disregard you. This is the word of the Lord. Amen. Well, I am glad to be here. My name is Sam. I get to preach a lot here, and a lot of you know this. Mark, I think you left a letter up here for Samuel, which is not me. Now, our text today is just awesome. Um, It is something I'm really eager to preach about, and it's only five verses, but this text really serves as the central idea for this whole letter. So we're in this series we call Good Church. It's about seven weeks. I'm not even sure what week we're in at this point, but it's really the marks of a healthy church, what should be in a healthy church, what the Bible says should be in a healthy church, because Titus is this guy who's sent to this island Crete in the Mediterranean who's there to help kind of establish these young church plants into what are healthy churches. And this particular text, chapter 2, 11 through 15, is the central idea of this ancient letter. I say ancient because it's several thousand years old, written to Christians back then living in Crete, but it is just as important for us and just as relevant to Christians living today. The truth that is packed in these five little verses, I believe, will be life-changing for those who do not know Jesus, but for those who do know Jesus, for those who do confess Him as Savior and Lord, these should be the kind of verses that are life-governing. Yes, these little, I know I'm building this up like a really good movie, and we'll see what happens, but it is an awesome text. They're verses that serve as a foundation for which to build your life or rebuild your life, but also a springboard from which daily life can come from. Now, in the first 10 verses of chapter 2, Paul spent a lot of time describing the kind of teaching and the kind of living that all Christians in the church ought to devote themselves to. And his teaching, what he told Titus to teach, basically, assumed a, a commitment to a certain Um, way of living and a certain way of teaching. And I'm going to call this, for lack of a better term, the Christian life. And we probably have heard before the idea of the Christian life. We have entire shelves at Christian bookstores, if those even exist anymore, on Christian living. So this idea of Christian life is something you may have heard before. I think if you ask somebody, if I ask you or you ask others, what is the Christian life? What does that mean to live the Christian life? I think our minds are probably immediately drawn to 
certain behaviors. Some might say, well, Christians read their Bibles. Christians spend time in prayer. Christians go to church on Sundays. Others might say, Christians go on mission trips. Christians devote themselves to helping the poor and the needy. Or Christians follow certain rules about drinking or dancing or movie watching or whatever cultural thing you want to throw in there. Some might say that's the Christian life. And still a few others might describe the Christian life as a life where you condemn certain people, a life where you avoid certain pleasures, or perhaps, and I would say wrongly so, Christian life is voting Republican. And I say that because that's where our minds maybe go. Certain behavior, all those are behaviors, decisions. Like we would think about that, and I find it um, interesting that ostensibly Christian, the word Christian means follower of Christ, but I find it interesting or maybe disturbing that a lot of people may not actually mention Jesus when asked what it means to live a life following Jesus. That ought not be. Now, I'm not suggesting that there's no such thing as a Christian way of living or that we're just supposed to let go and just, just do like Jesus. There was a way of living, at least in the, old, in the ancient or early church, so much so that when Paul was going to arrest Christians, he was looking for people of the way. So there was a Christian life that was certainly distinct from life in the world. But what I want to really do is to clarify that this way of living is actually only made possible by a way of believing. And by that I mean heart belief, not head belief. Heart belief transforms life behavior. Not the other way around. Behavior never, ever creates belief. Behavior reveals it, for sure. Behavior doesn't create belief. Jesus living begins with Jesus believing. And if you are off of Jesus living, the problem is with your Jesus believing, if that makes sense. The more you really delve into who Jesus is and, and consider what Jesus has done, the more you will begin to live like Him. This is why verse 11, our text for today, begins with this word, for. It's such a little word. Seemingly insignificant word. But it's a word that is essential to understanding this text, which means it's essential to understanding how we're to live the Christian life. Our lives as Christians. Now, as I said, Paul has, in those previous ten verses, just detailed the Christian life. And he's done so in very specific actions and very specific kinds of relationships for leaders, for men, for women, for young, for old. He's been very... There's no guessing as to how Paul expects us to live. How he's telling Titus he's supposed to teach and preach with authority about how you ought live. But as Titus calls people to obedience, to living a certain way, as he calls them to obedience, 
we need to understand something, that their obedience to this way of living that's been described is not to be understood as a means to obtain God's grace. Okay, that's really important. He is not saying you need to live, he's saying you need to live like this, but not you need to live like this, otherwise God won't love you. You need to live like this, otherwise God won't accept you. He's not saying their obedience is how they obtain grace. What he's actually going to say is that their obedience and their commitment to live this is a response to the grace God has already given. It's a response to his love. And those who have received God's grace respond this way. In other words, Paul is in these five verses telling us, giving us the reason we can live the Christian life. I didn't say the reason we should. The reason for those who are in Christ can. And it's this thing called grace. Now in verse 11, Paul begins by basically saying, we can live this way because, so that's my extrapolation of the word for, we can live this way because grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people. Now simply define, grace is the unearned, unmerited favor of God, especially towards those who don't deserve it. So you have these people who have not earned it. They have done nothing worthy of good. They're also really bad. So that's God's grace. He loves, He moves towards, He shows favor, not just to people who are kind of good, like they're I haven't earned anything to deserve the love that they're giving. And what Paul says that at some point in history, like at some point in real life, not in theory, not in myth, not in story, sometime in real life, grace appeared in this world in a way that could be seen and heard and felt. There was an event, right? Yeah, I know what event I'm talking about too. I wrote, I know where I'm going. But there was an event. Something happened that changed the history, the future of this world. Something happened that brought salvation for all kind of people. Men, women, young, old, slave, free. Paul is talking about the person and work of Jesus Christ. So in the Gospel of John, chapter 1, John talks about this event. John's the guy that when he starts his epistles, not the Gospel of John, but the epistles of John, he's like, I was there, I felt him, I saw him, I, like, I, I was an eyewitness to him. So he's like, Jesus was really, really came down. And so in the Gospel of John, he starts off really big, he's like, in the beginning was the Word. It sounds like very like creation sounding, like Genesis 1. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Right? And then he gets down to verse 14. And he says, the Word that was with God and was God 
became flesh and dwelt among us, like literally was here. Now listen to how many times grace is used. He says, we observe His glory. I saw it. The glory as the one and only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. He says, John the Baptist testified, this is the one of whom I said, this one coming after me ranks ahead of me because he existed before me. Which is a weird thing for John to say who's the cousin of Jesus and was born months before him. He's like, yeah, this guy existed before me. What? Because he's God. Right? Never created. Indeed, he says, we have all received grace upon grace from His fullness. For the law was given through Moses. Grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. No one has ever seen God. The one and only Son who is Himself God and is at the Father's side, He has revealed Him. Now, I'm also reading out of the CSB, which is probably a little bit different than the ESV, but just pretty close. Now, the one whom John has just described, he earlier described as the light of the world. Probably have heard Jesus described as that way, right? He's the light of the world, and this light of the world came into what amounts to a very dark place. How dark was it? Well, Romans 3 gives us a great explanation. You want to talk about spiritual darkness? It's not like, you know, physical, real spiritual darkness. He says that there were no good men. Not one. He goes further. There's no one who understood. There was no one who sought God. There was no one who feared God. Paul says that men desired and worshipped many things, but no one desired to worship God. Left to themselves, men would be dead in their sin, blind children of wrath, driven by fleshly thoughts and actions, inventors of evil who are unable and unwilling to accept the truth of God's love. In other words, if God does or did nothing, as Jesus said, men would die in their sin. They would choose exactly what they wanted and God would be wonderfully glorified by punishing sinners and exhibiting His justice. Do we realize that? Like God is merciful and just. He is loving and holy. And He would be in His rights as the Creator to punish everyone and save no one. But God. But God. Jesus steps into this dark place, empties Himself of all His glory, if you will, that He shared with God the Father. And He took the form of a humble servant. And He changed everything. But we still get this screwed up. And what I mean is, the Greek term gospel, we're talking about the gospel. And the gospel is an umbrella term that describes the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus and all that He is and all that He did. And the Gospel distinguishes the Christian message from every other religion. It's uniquely different because it is the only one that's true. But it's uniquely different in this way. The term evangel, 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 
That term is, is, you probably heard good news, right? It is the news of a great historical event that has changed the listener's condition and requires a response. It is similar to um, like a victory in a war or, or a new ascension of a king. Like a new king, like burr, 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 something has happened. And you need to respond. The gospel is not advice of what you need to do in order to reach God. It is not a list of things that you need to achieve in order to get salvation. It is news to be accepted and believed. That is different than any other religion. We are people who put our faith we believe that something has happened, that when grace appeared in the person of Jesus Christ, everything changed. As one pastor said, Jesus didn't come to tell us the answers to the questions of life. He actually came to be the answer. So the gospel, like, you just pile it down to one little, it is the news of what God has done to accomplish salvation through Jesus Christ in history. I used to say like four words. What, what is the gospel? It is Jesus in my place. It is Jesus living the life that I should have, then dying the death that I deserve, and he takes my ug, unrighteousness, and he gives me his perfection. Like that's the gospel. And this is not like, what do I need to do to get that righteousness exactly? Like what things, I, like believe. You believe that you are poor in spirit. You believe that you are broken. You believe you're in need of rescue, that you cannot save yourself. And Jesus says, here you go. Believe, I've done it for you. Like, basically, God created this righteousness apart from us. He's like, yeah, you guys, you can't do that. He does it, and then he says, I'm going to give it to you. That's grace. Paul uses this term, grace of God. He uses it often to sum up all of God's redemptive actions towards us. And that's beginning before creation with His plan for grace. It climaxes at the cross where it's this manifestation where grace appears, but it doesn't even end until at the end of creation. By grace, what happened? God reaches out to those who refuse to listen, who are both unable and unwilling, and He loves them. By grace, he sacrifices his perfect, sinless son. By grace, crucifying him on the cross for the sins of men. Paying a debt that we could never, ever afford to pay. By grace, Jesus redeems us. By grace, He forgives us. By grace, He adopts us. By grace, He frees us from the power of sin and death. By grace, He fills us with His Spirit. By grace, He seals us and secures for us an eternal inheritance. By grace, unearned, undeserved, by grace, we are now granted access through Jesus into the presence of our Heavenly Father who engages with us like children. And as a perfect heavenly father, he invites us to enjoy him and he empowers us to glorify him now and forever. Everything's changed. 
Like when you understand the righteousness that has been imputed to you and the unrighteousness that has been removed, when you understand that you've been forgiven and adopted into God's family irrevocably, when you understand that you've been empowered with His Spirit, everything changes. And the thing about it is I can say that and many of us just won't get it. We don't understand grace. And here's why you don't understand grace. Because you don't understand the depth of your sin. Those people who truly understand grace are those people who've screwed up big time. Even recently, like when you sit with someone who says, man, you don't, you're not going to believe what I did. I'm, I'm worthless. I have hurt this person. I have hurt this person. I've done this. This is so dark, so bad. And do you know how powerful it is to hear someone say, but your acceptability before God isn't based on your righteousness. It's based on Christ's. That doesn't excuse what's been done. It doesn't fix everything it's done, but it does secure that person going, God still has me. I'm still loved. When you are told that like your righteousness before God is not based on you, that keeps you humble and grateful. It changes everything. It changes everything. And so that's what Paul, like, Paul says, you can live this Christian life because grace has appeared. And he tells us that it hasn't just changed everything, it continues to change everything. Notice what he says in verse 12. For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation, and in 12, instructing us. Like the grace is instructing us to deny godlessness and worldly lust and to live in a sensible, righteous, and godly way in the present age. Basically the way he just told them to live. We are saved, but did you know that in more than one spot in the Bible, Paul says, yeah, you are saved and being saved. It's this idea that we are, uh, this grace that has transformed us and set us in Christ. The, the most common phrase that describes a Christian in the New Testament, in Christ, hidden in Christ. You are in Christ. Like the grace that says, I'm going to put you in Christ and I'm going to see you as I see Christ, God says, is the same grace that continues to conform us to make us look like that image in the flesh. Having spent time telling Christians how they should live in the world and with one another, he now is going to tell them why they can live this way. We're not just saved by the gospel and then changed by obedience. The gospel is actually what transforms us and, and helps us grow and renews us and solves every problem we have. That's why Romans 1.16 and 17 can say, I'm not ashamed of the gospel because it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, first to the Jew and also to the Greek, and then that word for. Don't a little for? For. In it, the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith. In other words, the gospel isn't just these facts that we go, okay, I've accepted these facts. Jesus um, was born in a manger. 
And uh, he's the incarnate Son of God. And Jesus uh, lived a sinless life. And Jesus was crucified for my sins. And Jesus rose from the dead. Those are the facts of the gospel. That's the facts of the gospel. But the implications of the gospel are endless. The gospel becomes the motivation for what I do and why I do and the means to do it and the model of what is supposed to be done. You know, the, one of the most common traits that we see in Titus that is told to the leaders and told to the members and the men and the women in different ways is have self-control. If I could wish any characteristic to be lived out by people in our world, it would be self-control. Control of the self. And there are two aspects of self-control that I think are both exemplified in the prophet Jeremiah. And through the prophet Jeremiah, God basically comes to Israel and says, let me tell you how you screwed up in two ways. This is Jeremiah 2.13. I don't think we have it on the screen. But he says, my people have committed a double evil. One, they have abandoned me, the fountain of living water, and dug cisterns for themselves cracked cisterns that can hold no water. What does he say? He says, they've done two. One, they have refused to drink from the pure fountain of water and goodness that will keep you healthy and grow. And they've turned and they've been drinking from the toilet or the mud pit. And, he's, and he basically says, it's not enough to just stop drinking from the toilet. That's what we kind of do. Like, I'm just not going to sin. Just going to show self-control over the flesh and not drink from the toilet. Right? Good job. But that won't grow you. That won't make you healthier. You've got to drink from the fountain of living water. And that's why Paul says grace helps you to deny right ungodliness and to pursue this life I told you you could live. In fact, he basically says it's impossible. Good luck. It's impossible to live a self-controlled life apart from God's grace. Why is that? And this is, okay, I'm about to read a verse that's stinking awesome. So it's an old verse out of the prophet Ezekiel, chapter 36. My prayer it gives you comfort, but also clarity. Ezekiel 36, verse 26. He describes what's going to happen in this, when grace appears, when this, when this new relationship is made through Jesus. God says, here's what's going to happen. We always read the first part, and I think we skip the second verse. Verse 26 of Ezekiel 36. I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit within you. I'll remove your heart of stone and give you a heart of flesh. Let's just stop there. I hope we all realize that apart from God, all men and women ever born have rock-hard hearts. Stones. I have never once seen a stone, a stone soften up. The Bible doesn't say that God comes and says, I just kind of put some magic divine spit water on it and it softens up and gets all smooshy and becomes a nice heart. That's not what he says. 
He says he comes in and he rips out that heart of stone and he puts in a heart of flesh. Now, I don't know how many have ever done open heart surgery on themselves. None. Thank you. You're weird if you try to raise your hand. But spiritually speaking, the same thing. God comes in and says, you got a stone heart. I'm going to replace you with a heart of flesh and it starts to beat for him. But he doesn't stop there. What if he did? Well, it wouldn't take me long to screw up that heart. I don't know about you. I'd mess that heart up good. So what does he say? I will place my spirit within you. Hold on. And cause you to follow my statutes and carefully observe my ordinances. What did I just say? I'm going to take you who are dead with your rock hard heart. I'm going to make you alive. Make it start beating. I'm going to place my spirit in you and cause you to live as you ought. That's grace. That's grace. The Bible says that we are new creations, that the old is gone, the new has come. That we fight from this position of righteousness. We're not fighting for righteousness. But even as we fight, right, we're not the ones fighting. That the Lord is in us fighting through us. Let me prove it to you. I'm not even making this stuff up. It's in the Bible. It's crazy. (laughs) Book of Philippians, which is the book of joy written from a guy in prison. Rad book. Philippians chapter 2. Again, this is one of those things where we read the first verse and not the second verse. So chapter 2, verse 12, and verse 13 as well. I'm reading from the CSB. It might be a little different, but pretty close. It says, Therefore, my dear friends, just as you have always obeyed, so he's talking about obedience, which is godly living in accord with what God has called us to, just as you have always obeyed, so now, not only in my presence, but even more in my absence, because he's in prison, Work out your own salvation with fear and trembling, which is related to obedience. Work it out. But then look at verse 13. Four. Doggone fours. They're all over the place. Why can you do this? Why can you work out yourself? Why can you strive for obedience? For it is God who is working in you both to will and to work according to His good purposes. Oh, God's in there. By His grace, doing it through us. Grace doesn't just give us a new heart and a new lease on life. It gives us brand new desires. And without even trying, right? The reception of God's grace. Like when you you come to the place where Jesus, I believe, opens your eyes to see. Because at some point in your life, you were blind to it. At some point in life, Jesus was a lunatic, a liar, or just a great teacher, whatever. But at some point, he became Lord. That moment, whenever that was, even if it was gradual, we're slowly opening your eyes, that moment is when grace became real to you. And in that moment, whether you wanted to or not, your disposition towards God changed. Your disposition towards your sin changed. 
Now, that doesn't mean that you never sinned again, but you certainly felt differently about it now. Your disposition towards God's word changed. Your disposition towards God's people changed. Your disposition towards your purpose in this world changed. That's grace. Grace changes us from the inside out. And I wish that every aspect of that change happened over, overnight and in perfection. But it doesn't. It's gradual. And I've seen God's grace plant someone, if you will, like boom, they're a new creation, a new tree. And I've seen them go boom, and like, whoa, you got fruit instantly. And sometimes I'm like, ah, I wish that was my experience. And others, I've seen it much slower. But the fruit comes. The fruit comes. You can't stop it. Grace changes us. But it's more than that. Like again, this is in the context of why I can live this way. Because essentially Paul is calling people to live Christian lives, which again, if we just took that in the context of our culture and our world, we'd be like, okay, i got to do good things, right? Okay. But if we didn't, if we took it in the context of Scripture, that's a better one. Calling people to live Christian lives is merely calling people to be who they are in Christ. So, I'm speaking to believers at this point. Be who you are! Be who you are in Christ! You are forgiven, you are redeemed, you are adopted, you are empowered, you got an inheritance that's way better than anything you got here waiting for you. That's who you are. And to the extent that you believe who you are, you will live like it. The grace doesn't just save us. It changes us. We can live like Jesus because it's Jesus living in us and through us. Right? Galatians 2.20, I've been crucified with Christ. Have you been? It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and delivered Himself up for me. He's the one living? Yes. But grace, as I said, doesn't stop there. Verse 13, as we're living, as we're endeavoring to live and be who we are in Christ, we've been saved, we are being changed, and it says we are waiting. While we wait for the blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, right? Jesus. There's a grace yet a fullness yet to be experienced. There's more grace coming. It doesn't just change us and transfer us from the kingdom of darkness to the kingdom of light. It doesn't just make us from dead to alive, from blind to I can see. It doesn't just give us the power to live in ways that honor God and represent God. There is more to come. The blessed hope is the return of Jesus. Now, at Christmas, we talk about baby Jesus. I love baby Jesus. Incarnation, Jesus. Son of God in a food trough. Like, Jesus. Easter. Crucified, resurrected Jesus. Right? All about crucified, resurrected. And that's awesome. And we should. We should celebrate that. But when do we talk about enough? The return of Jesus. I've had in the last three weeks two dreams about the return of Jesus. They've been rad. Now, I'm not some prophet, but I fell asleep and I, well, 
you know, you wake up in your dream. And I'm waking up and I walk out my front door and there's like, there's just stuff going on, right? Crazy stuff. Like, it looks like, you know, nuclear bombs everywhere. I'm like, but it was like not that. And you're like, Jesus, right? This is it. This is how it goes. I was so excited. And then I woke up. I was genuinely disappointed. There was a time in my life, and my wife and I were talking about this recently, there was a time in my life where I'd be like, oh, I can't wait to see my kids, or I can't wait to see my grandkids, or like, you know, Jesus has come right now. Right now. It's not that I don't think those things would be wonderful, but they certainly are not wonderful in comparison to return of my Lord and Savior. And I think more and more about that as I see more of the brokenness of my own life, more of the weirdness in this world. Just like, come on, Jesus. Like John in Revelation, come quickly, Jesus. Come quickly. And he said that 2,000 years ago. It's interesting to, to listen to New Testament writers, how they talked about it. Peter often said, oh, the end of all things is near. Let's pray. He had the writer of Hebrews say, let's gather together, make sure we don't neglect that. Encourage one another towards good works, especially as the day is coming. You had Paul always talking about his appearing. You had the Apostle John saying more than once, this is the last hour. And even in his revelation, he says, the time is near, come quickly. You know, why do they speak like this? Maybe the better question is like, if we thought the way they did, if we were that level of expectation, how would we live differently? And I don't mean in the sense of like, when you're like, okay, you know you're going to die next month, what would you do? I'd go to Disneyland, I'd, like, whatever. I'm not talking about that. I just mean like, at a real perspective level. How would you live differently if we were waiting urgently, eagerly for the return of Jesus? The future grace of God where He comes in and He sets all things right, right? He set all things right in a spiritual and even a heart level and, and certainly ruling right now, but when when it all comes to manifestation, we go, man, he really said everything right. When sin is gone and brokenness is gone and suffering is gone and death is gone. Like the Bible calls us exiles and sojourners and citizens and ambassadors of a different kingdom. And so Paul can call the church as he has in Titus 2 to disciple one another and commit yourself to the things of the Lord and in doing so, he's just saying, invest in that which is eternal. Like, do you realize, and I've said this more times than I probably should, but the reality is when, when those who are in Christ get to heaven, right, there'll be a lot and only Christians in heaven. There'll be a lot of people in heaven. And I won't know near, in, barely any of them, but I'll know you. And you'll know me. You see the beauty of the local church where when we invest in one another and we, we minister to one another, we are doing so in a way that lasts for eternity. That's stinking mind-blowing, right? But what it does, like when you, when you think of the imminent return of Jesus and you think of eternal life with Jesus, you begin to hopefully reorder your life. 
Because grace begins to remind you that this is not your home. It's amazing how much time we can spend to kind of creating our own little home and ordering things as if we belong here indefinitely. Like making things more comfortable. I'm not suggesting you ought not enjoy the things that God has given us in this world. He calls us to do that. But I wonder sometimes if we pretend this is our home and we live as if this is our home and we commit ourselves to building earthly legacies with the best intentions, forgetting that your legacy is going to be forgotten because you came into this world naked, you're leaving naked, and you ain't taking nothing with you, as are the people you're leaving the legacy for. And I think it's commendable and right to consider what you're doing for the next generation and how you're preparing them. But we're just passing through. Grace compels us to seek the kingdom of God first to avoid wasting our time, talent, and treasure on investments that don't have eternal significance. Because our waiting for something, I mean, our waiting for something we are convinced will come in the future. I mean, you have to be convinced Jesus is returning. You're waiting for something you're convinced is going to happen is going to completely govern how you live now. I literally open my phone like when I eventually do after my devotions, right? I'll say that. But after, right? I literally click on the news going, is this the day? I literally do that. We're either at war or Jesus coming back. Which one? Or both, right? Hopeful. Hopeful. My hope today is found in Jesus' righteousness. But my hope tomorrow was found in Jesus' return. I wake up tomorrow, <clears throat> darn it. Well, Jesus' righteousness. Jesus' return tomorrow. Same thing. I'm reminded what Paul says in Ephesians chapter 1, verse 13, telling us something so important. In Him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and when you also believed, you were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit. He, the Spirit, is the down payment of our inheritance until the redemption of the possession to the praise of the glory. We just have a down payment right now on a big gift. In order for grace to save us and change us and give us hope, we have to understand our purpose in Christ. And what I mean by that, like we can say, oh, grace saves us and grace changes and grace is going to come, but like, you have to be convinced of something that's really important. And that is like, what did Jesus really come to do? Because if you believe that Jesus came to like, just like, um, find a bunch of people who would identify with him and say, yeah, I'm a Christian and not do anything else. Um, that's really not it. What I'm trying to say is that Jesus came to save us from a certain kind of death to a certain kind of life. And the life goes on to eternity, but it lives out something here. Now, verse 14 is a fantastic summary of everything. So, like, you want to talk about, well, what did Jesus, what did Jesus do? Verse 14 
encapsulated. It's a summary behind the whole purpose between Jesus coming, his dying, and his raising again, his return. It's a life-changing verse. It says this, He, Jesus, gave himself to redeem us from all lawlessness and to cleanse for himself a people for his own possession, eager to do good works. He came to redeem sinners. So he came to pay the price it was required, not to Satan, to the Lord. To appease, if you will, his wrath. I'm going to stand in the place of this person. I'm going to redeem these people. I'm going to cleanse them. I'm not just going to say innocent. I'm going to say righteous. I'm going to clean them, forgive them, and then impute them my goodness. And then he says, I'm going to empower them to be my people who do good works. You know what that sounds like? The Garden of Eden, where he created people to know and to be with and to dwell with and to make him known, represent him on the earth as they do things for his glory. We're just going back to the garden. He's recreating us, a people to know and to dwell with who will make him known and represent him on the earth. You got to ask yourself, like, what is the purpose of good works? Lots of answers to that question. Lots of bad answers. But good works, I believe, has two purposes. When Paul writes in 2 Corinthians chapter 4, it's a passage that talks about, we have this treasure in jars of clay. You've probably heard that. And he talks about all the brokenness. He's like, man, we are beat down, but I'm not defeated. We are totally discouraged, but not spent. Like, he just kind of like, talks about all these things, and he's describing his life as a church planner, life as a pastor, life as a Christian. And here's what he says as he's writing to this church. He says, indeed, everything is for your benefit. All this work I'm doing is for your benefit so that as grace extends to more and more people, it may cause thanksgiving to increase to the glory of God. What's the purpose of good works? To bring grace to more people and to bring more glory to God. You notice who's not in that? Us. Because it's not about us. Our lives are not about what we can get or our comfort or our glory. It's about more grace being shared to more people and as a result, more glory and thanksgiving going to God. Our lives are not our own. We were bought with a price. This is why Jesus says, I'm buying a people for my possession who will do things for my glory. This is what Peter says. A verse that may be very familiar. It is in the evangelical church. But listen to how close it sounds to Paul. 1 Peter 2.9 You are a chosen race. You are a royal priesthood. You are a holy nation. A people for His possession. Yeah! We are those things. So that. Yeah? You got to keep reading. The so that's just get you. 
It tells you this is why you're these things. This is why you were chosen. This is why I bought you. This is why you're my possession. You may proclaim the praises of the one who called you out of darkness and into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. You had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Dear friends, I urge you as strangers and exiles to abstain from sinful desires that wage war against the soul. He's calling them to live like Paul said. Conduct yourselves honorably among the Gentiles so that why are we going to live godly lives in front of people who are not believers? So that when they slander you as evildoers, they will observe your good works and think you're awesome. No, they will observe your good works and glorify God on the day He visits. It's about the Lord. Like, why would we think it's anything different? Like we all, we, It's about the Lord. Jesus even said that. Remember? Hey, be a city on the hill. A light in a dark place. Why do you say that? Let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father in heaven. We live who we are so that grace goes to more people and more glory to God, recognizing that He has something securely held for us that is glorious beyond weight and measure. That's why in the end, Titus is told, proclaim these things. Encourage. Some people need to be encouraged. Some people are discouraged about who they are. Discouraged about, man, I, I screwed up. I am broken. I, I, I feel like I, I am worthless. The very fact that you feel like you dishonored God in what you did shows that your heart is different. And yes, that sucks that that happened. But God be praised that it didn't surprise Him and He's planned for your failure. So be encouraged. And then there are those that need to be rebuked. Right? There are those that think they're the jam, think they're awesome. Man, I got this good works thing figured out. Right? Whose glory are you really about? We all have to ask the question, why do we live the way we do? Is it a response to grace? Or is it trying to impress God and get your little star chart on Jesus' chart? Because it's supposed to be a response to who you are, already know you are in Christ. He says, let no one disregard you. So please listen. Titus is told to preach to Christians to live in a proper response to grace. And that's what I'm calling to you. You know, ironically, and don't disregard this because this is true more often than we say. People use grace as an excuse for not living like Jesus for not making the sacrifices, for not doing the things that are difficult, for not sharing in His sufferings. They use grace kind of like people use... Um, it's like back in the day, I should say, I think we're past this, but people often use the Gospel as fire insurance for death. I sometimes think people use grace in particular as idle insurance for life. Like, eh... Grace covers all. And while true, my fear for you is 
what Matthew 7 says is you stand before the Lord. He says, hey, Lord, I did lots of things for you. Like, I never knew you. The reason you did these things was for your glory. It wasn't for mine. You don't really understand my grace. We don't obey to be accepted or to be impressed or impressive, I should say. We obey because we understand we have been accepted in all that God has done to bring us back into his family. And that obedience is supposed to go beyond sentiment. It's supposed to go into actual action. And that action is inspired by Jesus. I believe it's empowered by Jesus and it's modeled after Jesus, but it's action. It's work. And I will close with this passage out of 1 Corinthians 15 where Paul gives us this beautiful picture of what he's talking about. And it's, it's a... It's a mind-blowing verse, although there's a lot of them. Mind-blowing verse. 1 Corinthians 15 is where he talks about the gospel. He says, this is the gospel. He lays it all out. And then he talks about all the things he's done for the gospel. And he says, in verse, beginning verse 9, I am the least of the apostles, not even worthy to be called an apostle because I persecuted the church of God. Like Paul has such a deep appreciation the understanding of who He is in light of the grace of God. What's this verse, right? Jesus Christ came to save sinners, of which I am the greatest, He says. He knows who He was apart from God. But then He says, but by the grace of God, I am what I am. Now catch this next phrase because it's a convicting one. It says, by the grace of God, I am what I am, and His grace toward me was not in vain. Don't let grace be wasted on you. There's a response to the richness of God's grace that is natural and expected. And he says, He didn't waste it on me. He says, on the contrary, I worked harder than any of them, speaking of these other false teachers. I worked harder than any of them. And it sounds like Paul's bragging. Yeah, I work way harder. He says, yet not I, but the grace of God that was with me. He gives glory to God for every single thing He has done. Grace has appeared in the person and work of Jesus and you cannot just have a eh, response to Jesus. If He is the Son of God in the flesh, if He came and died on the cross to reconcile a relationship that you could never do, to save you from sin and save you from death and rose from the dead promising to return, if that is what happened, you can't just go, yeah, that's cool. If you have not believed, if you are functioning as the Lord of your own life, if you believe that you are stronger than your sin, if you believe that you're going to stand before God and go, hey, let me tell you a few things I did for you. I appeal to you. Surrender your life to Jesus. He stands ready to forgive you, ready to empower you, ready to change you from the inside out. You are not stronger than sin and you're certainly not stronger than death. 
But for those who say they know Jesus, for those who say they have partaken in the grace of Jesus, received the gospel and believe, your response is clear. Deny yourself. Empty yourself. Give yourself and all that you have to Jesus because He is the one who denied Himself, emptied Himself, and gave everything He had for you. Really simple. We come to this table for those who are in Christ and you come answering some really particular questions. You have an answer to this one. You know what Jesus has done. You know what he has done. You know this bread represents his broken body. You know that this blood represents his blood shed for you and your sin. You know that. You know what he has done. But in believing that, you know who you are. You are a sinner saved by grace. Brought into his family. Been given a new life, but constantly need to renew that life. And you know by coming to this table that there will be a feast with the Lord that will be much more than little bread chunks and some juice. And we will celebrate the fact that we are there with our Savior, free from sin, free from death, in the fullness of everything God meant us to be individually and together. And it will be glorious. You are coming to the table going, come quickly, Lord Jesus. Until then, I'm going to walk in your grace. Let's pray.